Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today, I'm joined by the very fabulous Catherine Church. Um, Catherine is a specialist in digital transformation. She's got 20 plus years experience designing and executing digital transformation strategy in companies of all types, from startups to global corporates, across financial services, utilities, healthcos, and now more recently, the NHS. So Catherine, over the last few years, you've been most recently a chief digital officer for Surrey and Heartlands ICS. And now you have your own consultancy and do all sorts of interesting things, one of them being an associate with Ethical Healthcare Consulting, um, of which I am an associate too. And also, um, you started life as I did, training as a social worker. So um, I'm so interested to hear your journey and have a conversation with you about human factors in digital adoption, because I know that's a subject that we both care deeply about. Um, So welcome to the Digital Ecology podcast. Thank you, Vic. Thank you very much for inviting me to come on and talk to you. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here. And I guess first up, I just want to know, Catherine, how on earth did you find your way from social worker to digital strategist? There's been a theme. There's been a theme through every part of my career, and that was wanting to change the world and a deep sense of social injustice. And I went into social work um, thinking that that was the route to change the world And maybe in the 60s, where social work was an activist profession, that would have been the case. But when I was training in the 90s, then it was absolutely not the case at all. So I became the most, the best qualified person with no idea what they were going to do at age 27 when I'd finished my master's in social work and and worked as a mental health social worker for a couple of years. And I just really had to think of the steps that, that I could take to build transferable skills from social work into uh, into whatever the next steps were going to be. And, and so I've curated my career to build on every skill that I have and take that into, into the next part of, of my role. So that took me into recruiting social workers, where Reed asked me to design their first website and their first job matching platform. Um, that gave me a passion for tech. And I could see how you can use technology to bring people together, to make things cheaper, to make things easier, to remove mistakes. And that was it. I was then on a, on a tech path. And from there uh, into larger, so a couple of startups in, in the tech space, again, building on, the, on that social work and recruitment experience, and then moved into the corporate sector where I just took on bigger and bigger digital transformation programs um, for, for Capita, which was one of the best organizations I've ever worked for in my life with some incredibly incredibly smart people and we were literally changing the world we genuinely were changing the way in which organizations operated internally and changing the customer experience for their customers and it's that changing the world having done that for um probably about 15 years in various guises i thought that my my kind of tech for good let's go and change the world um the nhs looked ripe for change And I'd been doing a bit of work with a local authority around digital transformation and just kept coming up across the NHS. We cannot change the experience for people unless the NHS and and other services work together. And the job at the ICS came up. So there we go. 
And what surprised you? So coming from that really varied background and actually working in lots of non-NHS contexts, what sort of surprised you about moving into the NHS and, and what did you expect and what was the reality? Uh-huh. So so um, I have to say that my due diligence was absolutely appalling. So when I joined, um, I thought ICSs were a thing. So I thought they were legal entities. Um, I also thought the NHS was one thing. So I thought that behind that badge, that blue, that blue badge, that um, that it was all joined up. Um, and I, now, as I say this three years later, I realise how completely naive I was. So I thought an ICS was a real thing. I thought the NHS was connected rather than being a very loosely federated group of of independent organisations. And I thought I would come into a team and a budget. So none of those things happened. But what I did find that I did expect was the problems are exactly the same. The problems are the same. I would say the thing that really surprised me is the level of technical debt. So I hats off to all of the CIOs that might be listening to this, how you manage to keep the lights on and keep people safe um, when there has been such a lack of investment in the basic infrastructure in hospitals, in GP surgeries, is is just astonishing. So the the battle to keep people safe probably takes up way more energy than than it should. And that's just from a technical and and a cyber perspective. But beyond that, the issues are the same. If we brought the same kind of design thinking that have made Google and Amazon um, such an incredible user experience into the design of how we uh, create services for patients, then we could go so much faster, so much more quickly. Given um, that level of technical debt and how not joined up um, things are, as you discovered, did you on arrival and and starting to understand how integrated care systems worked in the NHS, did you feel like you could change the world? The world was too busy changing around me. So so, (laughs) so I joined in, in February of 2020, had two leadership meetings, I think, so our our ICS exec board meetings, and then we went into lockdown, so COVID hit. And at that point, um, I bought more laptops than than I will ever buy in my entire career. We were working, we worked really well across the ICS, across the trusts, actually, to come together and just enable whole swathes of individuals to move from working in hospitals to working from home. Um, and um, so I bought dual screens. I bought headsets. Um, I worried more than I think anybody around me. And, and I still think this is a massive issue around the cybersecurity risks that we had, um, uh, the networks that we had, the robustness of the networks, how we were enabling people to move um, to working from home. But we had to move super, super quickly. So rolling out virtual consultation platforms, all of these kinds of things, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, flexible telephony platforms, thinking about our networks and how they were creaking and getting the traffic around. So, so it moved into to kind of like operational, responsive operational management at scale really quickly, which was which was incredibly good fun actually. It was it was, um, and it was an opportunity for for people to work together. I was still really surprised by how separate all of the organisations were that that you know hospitals in a patch don't just think why wouldn't I do this with the hospital just next to me why do I need to do that myself and I still find that bizarre I still find that level of tribalism bizarre 
But um, but we did do a lot of things together really quickly, and it was a real baptism of fire. So 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 yeah, the world changed me rather than me changing the world. And rather than saving the world, you were trying to stop it from falling apart, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They well, I think yes. They, I mean, there were some extraordinary programs, and in terms of changing the world, the NHS has the ability to do some incredible things when it thinks as one organisation and it behaves in a more joined up way. And you just just look at look at the vaccination program and the 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 third vaccination that I had, second and third, was was a digital experience end to end. So I could see my status on the NHS app. I got a text message to remind me to go along. I got a, um, the, a choice of appointments when I arrived at the vaccination centre. My records were there available and could be could be checked. The entire process was completely digital, was completely digital. And that was done so quickly. And, you know, if we can do that at that scale, there is real hope for what the NHS can achieve. So technology really is not the barrier. It's about how the NHS in all its divergent parts can work more closely together and collaboratively. I, I would I would absolutely I would absolutely say so. Um, in any digital transformation, the majority of the obstacles are cultural and, and, and people based and impatient. People think you can do things way more quickly and underestimate the complexity but the resistance to change is in people. The difficulty is in coordinating uh, um, people. And I genuinely think the NHS has been set up to compete with each other for such a long time that it becomes very, very difficult when your entire career has been ensuring that the organisation that was is within your direct control is your primary focus. And it absolutely has to be. Then actually changing that focus radically to think about the people who are above you and below you or next to you in, in the chain or the patient or customer journey is really, really difficult, is 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 a massively hard thing to to do. And I have a huge amount of, of sympathy. As I say, I don't know a CIO that isn't doing, you know, doing their very, very best to do a really good job in in, in very difficult circumstances. So you and I both have um, a shared interest in human factors in user-centred design. And I wonder whether that's a social worker in us both, a social scientist sort of rearing its head in our current um, respective roles. Just talk to me a bit about when you were in your integrated care system role, you brought along user-centred designers, you started thinking about design in the work that you did. Could you just talk to us about how how you did that and what sort of roles you created within your patch? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Can I just just go back a little bit further in time, though, first as to to, to how I got interested in in service design? And I came at service design from a, a very commercial perspective, and this was as I was talking about being at, at, at Capital and looking at customer service functions. And actually, as you start to dig into the data of any customer service function, you'll find that the majority of the work that you get in a contact centre or an administration centre, back office or front office, is because of failures in the process, badly designed processes, which mean that people have to come back, use multiple channels and um, get extremely frustrated and a lot of the reason for that is because processes are manual and you have these horrendous handoffs in organisations between originations and claims in insurance companies, for example. So when you're actually looking at trying to make things more efficient, it sense that that takes you down that route of looking at 
who is delivering the process. The process itself is is reasonably easy to 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 redefine, but it's actually how are people engaging with that process? Do they understand what they need to do? Do they have the permissions to be able to do it? Can they access the data and the systems within the organization that will allow them to be efficient? And so I suppose that was my route into it. I didn't come at it from a design perspective. I came at it from a how can we make things more effective and more efficient? And and I brought that that thinking into the ICS um, with my first two substantive employees were um, service designers who came very much from that same background. If you're looking at a GP surgery where the reception team and the staff and the GPs are, are on their knees, as a lot of them are, then what are they actually doing? What of the activities that are happening within the operation could be streamlined, could be removed? How do we actually look at those end-to-end processes and, and take the administration burden out of it by making it more streamlined? So it came from a very practical, pragmatic need to solve some of the most pressing problems that we had. Your ideal team is, is service designers and BAs who get this stuff with an enterprise architect and some technologists who, again, can make the change happen once you've defined what this user model is and and the service blueprint, then actually, how do you make it happen? And I positioned them um, in a team that was sitting between the local authority and health, because why wouldn't I make my life even more difficult than it already was? And we started to, to, to try and think about some of the the, the big customer journey. So the big journey for somebody approaching end of life, for example, what happens? Where are the handoffs? How do people get involved? How is data passed across? To try and get people to get a view of what the role of their organization was within the wider customer journey. I don't, if, I don't know if that, that resonates with you, Victoria. I think people in the NHS are really good and expert in their part, delivering their part of the journey but actually, as a as a patient, as a citizen, what I care about is how it all fits together. How is it easy for me to go from sitting well, being well at home, to being unwell, to having to navigate all this complexity and then hopefully get better and not need you anymore? And my journey might begin way before I get anywhere near the service. And if I've got a chronic health condition, then the majority of my time is spent in my everyday life managing my condition and, and the touch points with the service might be few and far between and I think often we just end up thinking about the service and not those broader aspects of people's lives which I guess what is what user-centered design service design does it thinks about things end-to-end so you've just hit the nail on on the head there we did some really good and in-depth design work to try and design what our patient portal should look like so the citizen portal And so we went out and we did a lot of engagement and we just got some really tragic stories from people, you know, people who got multiple conditions that said that actually their full time job was being ill, was managing their multiple hospital appointments. And we had some people who would go to the same hospital three times in a week to see different specialists. And you got, I mean, things like people receiving letters that contradicted each other, text messages and and letters for the same appointments, things being cancelled or people not being told or going back and having tests before you'd actually, you know, got to the point of the process where you needed those. And it just feels really obvious that it's that 
ability to step back, look at the end to end and actually be able to orchestrate the end to end journey, but looking at it through the lens of, of, of the citizen. And I know these things, are, I know these systems are incredibly, you know, they're really, really complicated, but there's some low hanging fruit that we could really go for. So really what you were shifting was stopping thinking through the lens of silos of services and thinking about it from the patient citizen perspective, following their journey and trying to make that as uh, streamlined and effective as possible. So increasing quality and presumably experience of, of services as well on the way and hopefully people's outcomes as well if they have that better experience of a service. Yeah, yeah, I think, yes, I think that 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 was that was absolutely the ambition not being a clinician, you know, the things that I really do understand well and can see actually quite how easy it is often to change is is that administration pathway. So that's 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 I mean again from this this insight work that we did, we found that people didn't really mind if they were going to have a six month wait for a procedure. What they really did mind is not knowing where they were in the process. So actually you'd go to your GP or you'd be referred in in some way. And um, and then there was the, then the communication is just absolutely zero. So have you actually been referred? Has your referral been accepted? Where are you in the waiting list? So there's really simple things that could happen at scale. And I'm not saying they don't happen anywhere, anywhere at all. Some elements of this do absolutely happen in pockets, but it's always in pockets. So we found, you know, that, that a lot of traffic into GP surgeries and into hospital switchboards was people just going, when's my appointment? Who am I seeing? Where do I need to go? So, so I think there's, there's, some, there's some real low hanging fruit that, that we, could, we could look at um, whilst way cleverer people than me kind of look at, at some of the clinical pathways. So thinking about those service designers that you appointed, so those sorts of roles, you know, there's quite a few in NHS Digital, in NHS England, but actually having those roles in provider organisations in ICS is, is less common, although they're starting to pop up more and more. How did those roles go? What did they find um, in terms of how receptive uh, colleagues were to having those sorts of roles and what, what went well and what went less well? Well, as you try to do that sort of process redesign, I'm just going to come back to organisational silos. Mm-hmm. So we got we did some we did some amazing work in in pockets. We did a really really good. So proud of this piece of work around end of life, um, and there because we had um, a group of stakeholders that really wanted to work together, and that was in health and social care. We had really strong executive leadership from the SRO of the project um, uh, who was absolutely brilliant. So she made sure that there was there was time, there was access to people, there was a, a bit of money to go off and do some primary research. Um, she had really good relationships with the, with the hospices. Um, so it, it, it comes down to people. We similarly had in children's, Surrey had a really strong children's leadership group and we did some really good work there. We came up with a children's digital strategy um, and it's again because of the groups of people that that, that come together. The work is always the same. Um, it's the relationships between people and their willingness willingness to work together and just step back from the the incredibly important clinical work that they're doing and what happens within the boundaries of their organisation, and just think actually what is our collective impact on the population that we're trying to serve. And when you you feed some of these things back, it's it's 
it's actually quite shocking. Some of those stories I just told you, people just say, oh, Christ, I didn't think we were having that impact on people. But it's then, especially in the way projects are funded, it's then where does the money come from? Where does the project come from? Where does the time come from? And people need to be enabled and given time to work together collectively on these bigger you know, programs, cross-organizational programs, because everyone's so busy. Someone once described it to me as um, trying to fix the engine while the um, while it's still running. And I think that's very much what it's like. You don't have the luxury of, of starting from scratch or completely stepping back. But I think what I'm hearing you say, and it, it resonates with my experience as well, is that you need to pay attention to relationships, to shared purpose. And that takes time. And you need to foster and nurture those sorts of things. But if you put those foundations in place, then that sets a really good positive environment for change to be like more likely to succeed. Mm. You're absolutely right. And I think that's the potential that ICSs really have. And then one of the things that 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 I spent a lot of time thinking about was scale and place. So, you know, the, the each of the organizations within the NHS are experts at doing what they do. And there are things that, you know, the the design of clinical pathways, for example, within a hospital um, are probably something that 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 hospital needs to think about. But how a patient flows in and out of the hospital and what their end to end journey is something that everybody needs to think about together. And, And that applies in exactly the same way to things like network infrastructure, Wi-Fi, IT support, you know, probably maybe even getting towards hosting are there things that you can do at scale which are much, much more effective and allow you to bring in scarce resources to um, uh, to support and accelerate and, and, and de-risk service delivery? And, and, and I think design is, is one of those functions where actually if you say as a group of organisations, we're going to come together and design the end-to-end journey and then as individual organizations, of course, we're going to take that away and we're going to deliver it in our in our individual organizations. But what's lacking is that collective view. And NHSX and NHSD have done some really good work there. But what I can't see is how that work at the center gets translated into what happens on the ground. Yeah. And I guess each context is different. The relationships are different. There's there's history, there's culture, there's there's so much to have to get to grips with. And I guess um that's what you'll you'll have had as your challenge when you were a chief digital officer with your integrated care system you've got to work with and build from what you've got um Catherine I'm just going to um take us on a slightly different tangent because we've got this big push around electronic patient records and getting um provider organizations and integrated care systems so that they use them digital records it might surprise some people who maybe are less familiar with the NHS or the inner workings of the NHS to know that lots of trusts are still working on paper systems and lots of different siloed systems so that big push around electronic patient records tends to be very product focused it's about the technology and how we get the technology deployed and implemented but I know that you've been thinking, and we've had some conversations about the human factors elements of that. So when you're thinking about an EPR deployment, where do we need to be thinking about human factors and, and the people if we're going to get it really working well? So I would, again, I would come back to the fact that I'm not clinical. So I can't design what a good flow of a 
patient you know what 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 needs to happen in an operating theater or or what needs to happen in an emergency department or where do you put you know clinical safeguards in there's that the role of the clinicians in a multidisciplinary team so i think the first i think the first success factor is multidisciplinary teams and any organization that i've worked in that's been looking at putting new platforms in will get a range of people. So you'll have the designers, you'll have IT, you'll have finance and compliance, you'll have your your SMEs from from the operations, and then you just bring somebody like really left field in. I brought ballet dancers in, mm-hmm. I brought lorry drivers into design sessions, so you can just get that that really kind of left field perspective. And I think it's about genuinely standing in the shoes of the person who's going to be using the technology. So, and, and I'm just, I was horrified the first time I went into a hospital and learned that it can take 25 minutes to log on with your key card. There's no single sign-on into a variety of applications. People don't sign in and sign out of, of, of applications. If it's going to take you 20 minutes to do it and you're busy, then you're just going to be logged in as someone else. So all of your data collected is 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 wrong. And then, then the interface, the interface is horrible. Trying to navigate between screens, trying to toggle between eight or nine different systems to get bits of information. The systems aren't complete, so you have to do half of the process on paper. If you if you are and, and you do have devices that you can move around, you'll get to a part of the hospital where there's no Wi-Fi. So you can't do your process electronically. So people do end up keeping paper records. I haven't seen anywhere that hasn't got paper records as well as electronic. The other thing is that people just don't, I don't think people trust the systems. So they'll still keep their paper records as well as inputting into an EPR. So all of those things are really, really important. So, you know, have you got a device? Do you know how to use it? Can you log on quickly? Have you got the bandwidth, the Wi-Fi? Can you walk around with it? And then can you actually find the data that you need? Are the processes intuitive? And it doesn't matter what the process is. It needs to be intuitive and easy to use. So modern, configurable, configurable user interfaces and if we just solved those bits, just solved those bits, you'd find that the take up and adoption and confidence in EPRs would be so much stronger. So when you're building a business case, as a CIO will have to do, a building a business case to make the case to get the money to buy the electronic patient record, because this is a big, expensive thing that you're going to have for 5, 10, 15 years. What do CIOs need to be building into that business case to um, make sure that they can account for all of this complexity that you've described? Because this is so much more than a product. <laughs> We're thinking really broadly about all the different factors that might influence a successful implementation. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm exactly, exactly right. Proper baseline assessments of the environment where the product is is going to land, and that does mean the infrastructure. How fast? How fast is the application going to render on the screen? How are people going to log into it? What's the authentication mechanism? So all of those obstacles that I've just described. Um, part of the business case surely has to be addressing those problems because you can have the best software in the world, but if you can't access it, then you're never going to use it. So that would be one thing. So I would have a, a chunk of activity up front, which is about baselining the, your your digital maturity in, in terms of infrastructure. In fact, go around the seven components of what good looks like and really have an understanding of the context in which this software is going to land 
And the business case needs to encompass the resources and activities that will enable that software deployment to be successful. Um, and a lot of that is, is, is overlooked. So actually doing that service design up, up front, having a set of key design principles, really addressing digital maturity, giving the proper amount of time for clinicians and practitioners to get involved in actually designing the workflows that go within the, the EPR isn't enough consideration or resources are put into that. And then the other thing that I've seen again and again is that there's no resources to maintain that change function. I mean, nobody does this in banking because it's so risky. You don't rip out your core systems and replace them with new ones because it's too risky. So the, 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 you know, the, the risk to an organization is massive and, it, and, and it's a huge, huge task. And I think expecting that task to close down or, or the project to close down when the software goes in is, is really naive. So you need a year, two years of being able to embed and, and, and really get the value out of the project because change is slow. None of us like change. Digital change is, is, even, is even slower. So those would be really many much more resources in right at the very beginning and then keep your design and change team um, on site for a good year or two. So do you think it's fair to say that commonly business cases are under underestimate the change elements required that you've described and, and, and really there needs to be much more focus on, on paying attention to these sorts of activities over an extended period of time if we're really going to get the benefit? That would be my hypothesis. And I also don't think there is anywhere enough design skill so I think we tend to look at these as technical implementations with a training need. But actually, it's a heart and minds. It's hearts and minds. You are yeah. asking people to completely change the way in which they work. And you need that engagement. Catherine, it's been so good talking to you. That was I felt like a very fast paced conversation and we seem to power through a lot. Um, a question I always like to ask at the end of an interview Um is about actually your um, desire to change the world. You know, that's a big ambition. But if you could change one thing that would take us on that step towards that changing the world in this sort of context, what's what's the one thing that you think is achievable that just gets us a little bit further down the journey of successful digital transformation in the NHS? I think you need to put me in charge. Okay, that's Catherine's pitch for world domination, <laughs> or at least NHS domination. I love it. Oh, yeah. I'm only joking. Catherine, so thank you so much for um, your time. It's been great to have a conversation with you and, and super to have your insights. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, you're a superstar. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology podcast. Please like, subscribe, and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton. <laughs>